Welcome to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, episode 52. Today on the show, I have Boss Van Horen, Dutch athlete, sports scientist, and strength and conditioning specialist. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 52 of the Just Live Performance Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and today we have Abbas Van Horn from the Netherlands. Uh, he is applied sports scientist. He is a strength and conditioning specialist. He is a middle distance running athlete. Uh, right now, he is lecturing at Fontys University of Applied Sports Science, is uh, very well acquainted with Franz Bosch and the works of Franz Bosch. And uh, uh, Bosch was originally actually recommended to me by Chris Corfist in his uh, just talks with him about muscle slack and some of the research that Boss is doing there. If you haven't heard of uh, muscle slack or the ideas of muscle slack, well, you're going to learn about it a lot in this episode, but it is an idea that revolves around the uh, delay of muscle, of how quickly muscles can become tense, which really means a lot if you're an athlete who, want, is, who cares at all about being fast and powerful and good on the field of play and be able to react to opponents and jump high appropriately and uh, pretty much every conceivable athletic movement and so with that in mind I think that these topics uh, especially a lot of Franz Bosch topics are usually of hot uh, debate in the strength uh, and performance community which is a good thing it's good to talk about ideas and it's good to refine what we do and think about what we do and Boss is just a great guy to talk uh, about this stuff with he's been um, or done a lot of research relevant research as he'll mention on the show uh, in these these arenas and so as we are on the journey to write better strength programs better performance programs it's good to know about why we why we are doing what we do what is it about lifts we do in the weight room that might have positive or even negative transfers to speed and athletic performance and there's a lot of factors it's more than just is the muscle stronger or are you moving the bar fast and slow as you'll see as we get into this uh, with boss and and this is uh this isn't just concepts there's there's applied stuff uh, in this podcast as always I, I could never run a podcast just talking about concepts um, just just philosophies and what might be happening here we 
and we'll uh, chat a little bit about uh, applied and applications to movements in the weight room. And overall, a great episode. Boss is a really bright young guy. Uh, he has amazing quest for knowledge as an athlete. He wants to know why things are the way they are, what makes his body tick. Uh, much like a lot of us, especially a lot of us who have watched this podcast. And he's just such a, has such a great wealth of knowledge in mechanics, physiology, motor learning. And I think you guys are just going to get so much out of this show uh, in terms of little, knowing a little more on the why of what we do and using uh, that why to create better programming with a, a greater sense of purpose. So I'm excited to bring you guys this episode. Let's get on to episode 52 with Boss Von Horen. Boss, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's just kick it off a little bit. Uh, tell us about your background. Where are you uh, right now and what are you doing? Uh, when What projects are you working on? So in 2011, I started uh, my bachelor in sports science and uh, movement science at Fondes University of Applied Sciences, the Institute of Sports Studies in the Netherlands. And meanwhile, I also started running at a national level, so middle-long distances, which I still do today. And during my bachelor, and also as a result of my own training uh, with running, I noticed I was particularly interested in the sort of why question. So why do we do things the way we do them in training? Is there evidence for doing this? Can we do this better? And this range from fundamental questions, so like how do the hamstrings function during running? Is it really eccentric? Is it isometric? To sort of more practical questions, one, what does this then mean for training if the hamstrings function eccentric or isometric? And another one I recently got interested into is like everybody does a cool down after exercise, but does it really help recovery? So all these questions were, were going in my head and still are today. So that's why I eventually decided to do a Master in Human Movement Sciences at Maastricht University, where I graduated in 2016. And after graduation, I worked part-time as a lecturer in strength conditioning for Fonds University of Applied Sciences. And I have been working as a sports science consultant. And from September on, I will start my PhD project in hamstring injuries. Oh, that's great, man. Yeah, I, uh, it sounds like you, you're doing some great things, asking great questions, and, uh, and I'm really looking forward to talking about some of these things, especially some of these common themes that we do here, like the you know, eccentric phase. Like, what does that mean, and, and what does it mean for training? Uh, could you, uh, the first question, actually, could you talk about uh, what is, like, in terms of the eccentric phase of movement in most sporting actions, is this something mm -hmm. we really need to train? How does the eccentric play, phase actually play out in sporting movement or is there other things that are going on like isometrics or co-contractions how how are we uh, should we approach this yeah it's a, it's a really good question i think and many people sort of overlook the eccentric isometric concentric idea so i think it's important to realize that in many movements classically considered to have an eccentric phase there may actually be no eccentric phase or at least not at the muscle fiber level where i think we should be looking at so, for example, during the downward uh, phase of a kind of movement jump, uh, the fascicles of the leg muscles passively lengthen before they contract. And similarly, the hamstrings uh, during running also first passively lengthen, and then they likely remain isometric, even though in both the kind of movement jump and during running, the whole muscle tendon unit lengthens. So, therefore, lengthening of the whole muscle tendon unit does not necessarily reflect lengthening of the fascicles or muscle fibers. And since the muscle fibers mostly get injured, and since they eventually produce force, 
I think we should be looking at what happens with the muscle fibers when we refer to eccentric, concentric, or isometric, and not uh, to the whole muscle. So looking at what happens to the whole muscle can provide incorrect information about the muscle fiber functioning, and this can lead to incorrect training also. So, yeah, I guess main point is here to take home, just look at what happens to the muscle fibers, and they may not always have an eccentric action, while the muscle tendon unit can actually be lengthening. So with that being said, some sporting movements do probably include some eccentric phase of the muscle fibers. And if that eccentric phase is crucial for uh, success in that sport, then yes, perhaps we should be training it. But yeah, as I just mentioned, in, some, in other sports like kind of movement jumping downward phase, it always be considered to be eccentric and the same for hamstring functioning. But I recently wrote with Franz Buzz a paper actually where we argued that especially the hamstrings during running that there is no eccentric muscle fiber action, but likely an isometric fiber action. And perhaps, therefore, we should be doing isometric training and not eccentric training. Yeah, I, I yeah, really I, love I, that stuff. And I think that uh, that was something that I think I started to think about uh, maybe even a, a while ago in sense of like the muscle is kind of locking up, or the way I understood it is the muscle is kind of locking up in a way or, or doing isometric and the tendon is doing the loading. Is that, and like, the, so that's what's happening in, in running. So when the leg is swinging forward, the hamstring is just locking and holding while the tendon uh, stretches for the leg to come through in a way. Yeah, exactly. So initially it's it's passive lengthening of the, the fibers. And then when the, the muscle fibers, so yeah, the muscle fibers are activated, they remain at one length, so isometric. And then the tendon stretches and eventually recoils, causing the swing leg to retract. And it's the same what happens during uh, the, to the calf muscles also during the ground contact when running. The whole muscle tendon unit lengthens, so from that point it would be considered eccentric. But again, when you look at the muscle fiber level, they remain isometric, and the tendon acts as a sort of spring, so it just stretches and recoils, providing elastic energy, and also actually protecting the muscle fibers from this, this fast applied stretch. So it has multiple functions, actually, the, the tendon. And that's why I think we should be looking at what happens to the muscle fibers and therefore decide on what should we train. Because if we are training eccentric, we know that uh, training adaptations are quite specific also to contraction modes. So if we train eccentric, then mostly eccentric force will improve, also at the specific velocity of eccentric training. But if we train isometric, then mostly the isometric force will improve in the specific position we have been training the muscle at. So that's why I think it's important to you know, critically investigate, well, how does the muscle fiber or the muscle tendon unit function and how do the muscle fibers function and base training on, yeah, also on how muscle fibers function then during the exercise, uh, during the eventually sport movement. Yeah, it makes sense. I've heard um, a football strength coach, Buddy Morris, say something about there's, the brain has a different coordination or motor program for each phase of muscle contraction. So a, con a concentric coordination is different than a isometric and an, an eccentric. And I, I, that would make sense too with the, the way we train and, and um, especially with the hamstrings and how fast they go during sprinting. I mean, that's like really rapid. And uh, it's, yeah. it's interesting what you said about the, the protection because yeah, with how many degrees per second that swing leg is coming out, if the hamstring had, the, the muscles had to actually be lengthening, that would, that would probably be pretty dangerous and very injurious. Yeah, exactly. So the body has a lot of mechanisms essentially to protect the muscle fibers from which is called strain, so stretch to the muscle fiber. So and one of these mechanisms is a tendon and another mechanism, for example, is muscle gearing. So it's a change in the angle of the, the muscle fibers, so a change in panation angle. So 
then this mean that uh, this means that the muscle fibers are not necessarily stretched, but simply they change an angle, which causes also the, the whole muscle fibers in total to lengthen, but the individual muscle fibers can remain at one length. So essentially reduces the stretch applied to the muscle fibers hereby protecting them from strain. So that's why I think we should be more yeah, critically looking at the eccentric phase because the body does a lot to prevent actually this eccentric phase. And there's now quite some attention to do eccentric training because it's assumed that there's a lot of eccentric actions happening during movement, but I actually think it's much more limited than what's usually assumed. Yeah, that's interesting. With the muscle gearing, I've the only place I had heard about the that before was with Franz Bosch and the idea of the with the penation angle of the biarticular muscles. Does that? Um, I guess what what I'm trying to ask is, does that change based off of the type of training? Does eccentric training have a different impact on that penation angle or the gearing versus isometric or concentric training, or or how does intensity play in with that? So it's a good question. So. Uh, specifically for muscle gearing ratio, I'm actually not sure if there's any research in this. So there's only recently have, has been some research into muscle gearing as a sort of mechanism anyway. So it hasn't been investigated as far as I know what the effects of training are on muscle gearing. But if you look at uh, fascicle length or penation angle, uh, I've looked, for example, at what studies have found for the hamstring and also some other muscles. And a lot of researchers believe that especially eccentric training has the largest effect on increasing fascicle length. But when you then take a more critical look at these studies, you can also say, well, perhaps it's just the movement velocity or the intensity of the contraction that causes the, the change in fascicle length. And it's not necessarily the eccentric muscle action. So again, that's something we should have more research on. And the same for panation angle. We don't really know yet how uh, contraction type influences panation angle. So some researchers believe that concentric training caused the greatest increase in panation angle and thereby would theoretically protect the muscle uh, by strain from uh, having more effective muscle gearing. But again, also there we don't know whether it's movement velocity or intensity or duration, what actually causes the effects or whether it's really contraction type. So there's a lot of factors that are can actually can influence the effects of training and and we just need a lot of research to control for these factors, actually. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I agree. I, I agree with that. I think that's interesting, especially too, because I feel like every exercise you do in the weight room almost is a, a mixed bag of sorts. Like you have positive as adaptations, like in a deep squat, for example. But there's then there's some negative stuff that could happen, and to to know exactly what from each exercise is doing what what adaptation is uh, certainly something I'm more interested in as the research presses forward with all that. Because I think there's, like we were just talking before the show, like with the heavy weightlifting, sometimes the best adaptation is the overshoot. And so what part of what you were doing uh, is contributing to that or maybe hurting or suppressing performance temporarily? Yeah, that's a good point because a lot of people only consider, well, if I do this exercise, this will improve. But I don't think about possible negative effects on coordination or changes at a more structural level to panation angle, fascicle length. And I think that's really something we should consider because training will not only have positive effects, but it can potentially also have negative effects. So that's, that's a good point. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, uh, you mentioned uh, with the hamstring and the the isometric training and, and hamstrings. Uh, so I'm just going to throw a little a little quick practical question in here before we kind of move into well, what we were just talking about a little bit, which is heavyweight training. But in terms of the isometric stuff, 
that you, that you, Franz Bosch, are doing. Uh, what are what are some different ways that are just just straight isometrics? Is there any oscillatory like kind of like contract relax type stuff you guys are doing? What are you finding with the hamstrings and the, with the nature of the hamstrings in running? Uh, how are you addressing this in in the resistance training realm? So we have written two papers recently in the Journal of Sports Sciences, and so for people really interested in the topic, they can just uh, Google. Well, I guess eccentric hamstring isometric, and they probably will find some uh, some links to, uh, for example, ResearchGate, and there they can request the papers for free, and I can send them, or they can send me an email on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and I can send them the papers, because it's difficult to explain without pictures or videos, but mm-hmm. um, I can try to explain some exercises we propose in the second paper. So the first one is the single leg Roman chair hold, uh, which essentially involves uh, back extension equipment. And you're holding one leg uh, as a support, and the other leg is just unsupported. So you have all fours acting on just one leg on one hamstring, and you lift up a weight when you're, uh, which is put on the ground in front of you. You lift up the weight, hold it for three seconds in an isometric position, and you put it back down. And well, this is one of the exercises we think uh, conditions the hamstrings specifically for high speed running because it likely requires an isometric hamstring muscle fiber action it requires likely high muscle activity which is also which exercises should have to provide a sort of overload it requires uh, probably also high muscle forces which also is necessarily to provide an overload for the hamstring and because the pelvic uh, is free to rotate it can uh, self-organize the optimum length of the hamstrings and in this way we believe that this exercise is actually quite specific for high speed running but that's actually something I will be investigating in my PhD, whether this exercise is really uh, specific to high speed running. So we don't know yet for sure, but let's hope some research uh, we'll find out soon. Yeah, that that's interesting stuff. I I had always kind of felt like in the realm of the, the weightlifting and exercises that doing the isometric stuff had, um, you, you didn't lose coordination from that as much as heavy weightlifting, like, like traditional up and down heavy weightlifting. Could you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about uh, what role does heavy weightlifting have in strength training in terms of uh, coordination, rate of force development? Is it something, uh, how should we consider using traditional up and down lifting as we uh, build our programs? Maybe specifically specifically around running with examples, but uh, anything, anything really being on the table. So I can first talk about coordination and then perhaps later on rate of force development. So I guess for coordination is quite interesting. It has been I guess it's 1994, so it was two years after I was born, so quite a while ago, a study by Bobbert. They used a computer model uh, to perform vertical jumping, and they increased the strength of one muscle, but they didn't adjust the time when the muscle was activated and deactivated. And actually what they found was that the model jumped uh, less high with the increase in strength, but without improvements in timing, so essentially coordination. And when they also improved coordination, the model jumped higher. So essentially, it's still a computer model, of course, but the study then showed, well, if you increase strength of a muscle without improving the coordination, performance will decrease. And some other studies, I think two uh, studies from more recently, don't remember the exact years, from uh, Roland Dantilla, I think, one of, is one of the authors. They investigated the effects of uh, single joint training, uh, calf, uh, calf raises, and multi-joint training. So, so one group performed multi-joint exercises and the other group performed single-joint exercises. 
and the multi-joint uh, group performed a ballistic squat. So essentially they just uh, yeah, squatted down and they had the freedom to plant their flex at the end of the squat. And the authors believed that this trained the energy transporting role of the biarticular gastrocnemius muscle. And the other group, they performed single joint training. So they did a squat, but they could not perform plantar flexion with their ankles. And the other, and they also did separately calf raises. So then they just trained the calf muscles in, in isolation, essentially. This. So they didn't train the energy transporting role of the calf muscles. And what they actually found is that the multi-joint group improved vertical jump performance, and the single joint group showed a slight decrease in performance. So this is actually not a computer modeling study anymore, but they have actually investigated in human subjects. So it's quite interesting again. So you see that if you uh, try to uh, isolate muscles while they actually function in a complex coordination uh, structure in actual sports movements, then performance may decrease. And that's why I think we should be thinking more critically also about this, this single joint training. So with leg curls, calf raises, all these exercises, a lot of people, especially with a background in bodybuilding and physiotherapy, they are really used to thinking about, okay, we have one muscle, we need to improve the strength of the calf muscle or the hamstring or whatever. So we need to do leg curls or calf raises. They just think about the muscle in isolation, but they don't think about how this muscle functions in cooperation with the other muscles during movement. And this is really something which is you know, really important to, to think about because, well, as I just explained, if you just train this, these muscles in isolation, they actually decrease performance while you're actually looking for you know, improvements in performance, of course. Yeah, and that's probably especially true with, uh, with the biarticular muscles like the hamstrings and the, the gastrocnemius and those things, right? Yeah, exactly, because they are, well, they, they transport the energy from the monoarticular muscle, so they, they always function at one joint, so you can't also train them in a more, well, you, you always have to isolate them essentially, I would say. But for, for biarticular muscles, you should, well, perhaps not always, if you come back from uh, knee surgery or whatever, I can imagine there is some use to do some isolated training for a while, but I would say for most sports activities, it really makes sense to think more about, well, for biarticular muscles, think about how they function during movement. Usually there's movement at two joints, so for example, for the hamstrings at the knee and the hip during running, and just training them while moving one joint, so only the knee or only the hip, and for the, the calf muscles, only the ankle or only the knee. I'm not sure if that really improves performance or actually decreases performance. Yeah, I, I think that that's definitely true. It makes me think about like even just like something as simple as calf raises and training for jumping, like rather than just sitting there on a stair, like preceding the the calf raise movement with a little bit of a knee bend. Uh, and I'm sure once you get the hamstrings, it becomes much more complicated. And I think in the weight room, too, it's a little difficult because trying to emulate that horizontal force, I, I mean, like you said, putting someone on a Roman chair is probably one of the only ways you can get the, the trunk moving with more horizontal uh, weight. Uh, to create that load and, and be able to open that option up for the hamstrings. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's quite difficult. And if I remember correctly, the, some computer modeling studies have estimated that the force acting on the hamstrings is about five times body weight at maximum speed running. So if you want to replicate this force during movement, I'm not sure even during the single leg Roman chair, well, probably you can't replicate this. And the same is true for the calf muscles during running. I think it's even up to seven times body weight. So if you want to have an overload from a quantitative way, you have to use a weight that's at least 
seven times body weight on your shoulders to overload the calf muscles. So it's really difficult to, to, pro to, to provide an overload essentially from a quantitative way. So perhaps we should be looking also at providing overload from a qualitative way. So essentially from a coordination's perspective. So, and I guess that's something important to realize for coaches with a background in bodybuilding or powerlifting. They just tend to think about overload as weight, just we can we have to use more weight and that's overload. But we can also think about coordination from uh, overload from a coordination perspective. So we can just uh, increase the complexity of an exercise. And that's something French Boss has been working with a lot, actually. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah. Uh, so your thoughts, uh, Boss, on the traditional list. So Coach, lifts coaches will traditionally use so squat or deadlift and those things uh it and we talked about this a little bit before the podcast but in terms of uh their place in a program and let's just say for something like running uh is there a more specific way that we can use these or how do we how do we still use these in light of muscle coordination or just the grand picture of training and might maybe even outside a little bit of the coordination realm yeah okay so i guess a really nice example is uh, Perhaps not a squat, but for the power clean. You can perform a power clean just from the ground using two legs. And again, Franz Boss provides a nice example of this in his book. And so that's the basic exercise is just performing a power clean with two legs from the ground. And if you want to make it more specific for running, then you can think about, well, what, what happens during running? Do we have this deep uh, sitting position, which we have during the initial uh, first pull of the power clean? Well, we don't have this position. So how can we make it more specific? Well, we start on boxes. So that's the first thing we can do. Can we then do something else to make it more specific? Well, if we look at running, we don't apply force with two legs simultaneously, but we apply force with one leg alternating. So we can just perform a single leg uh, clean, for example, or snatch. And if we then put a box in the front of us, we can uh, land on the box here by minimizing the eccentric impact and also having a focus, external focus, on the box to apply sort of upward and horizontal force. So these are all things we can think about to make exercises more specific. And the same is true for a squat. If we just perform a squat with two legs, we could make it more specific, for example, by just performing a single leg squat. Yeah, do you, do you think that this is just kind of something I had thought about, and I think some coaches do this, or a lot of coaches think about this and do this, but the idea of if you were in the, in the midst of a single training session and you did something that maybe you could label a little discoordinative, like a, like a heavy loaded squat, and then followed that up. So immediately after you did some more muscle coordination type stuff, maybe, maybe it would be some single leg lifting or maybe even just sprinting or something that kind of puts the muscle back in uh, the, uh, more of a normal coordination to running. Do you think the sequence of the, wor the, the movements in a workout, uh, how does that play a role? Or even in a day or a week, does that, is that something that people are considering or does that play a big role in how someone might go about looking at a workout? So I guess you can include some of the, let's say, more traditional exercises like a squat or a deadlift from the ground or whatever. But again, it's here important to consider potential negative influences, not only on coordination, but also on more structural level, like, like fascia length, penation angle, whatever. And also just fatigue. So essentially, just perhaps you're just fatiguing athletes, and it doesn't really contribute to performance. So if we can use a single leg squat to provide a sort of quantitative overload, why do we then need to provide even more quantitative overload, which is less specific? So perhaps has less of an effect on sport performance, but it does result in fatigue. So 
I guess there's no clear-cut answer to what is the best, what should we be doing. But from my experience, I would say we most people can perhaps train more specific. So just think about not not using these these isolated exercises so much, and think about well, if if I just only do squats, try to include at least some single leg work and single leg power cleans and just try to think more critically about how can you make your exercises more specific to sports movement. And of course, that doesn't mean that we should only be doing specific training because otherwise we end up eventually doing only the sports movement, which is only like the most specific part of the sports, of course. So there is a sort of trade-off, but I guess there's no clear-cut answer to where the sort of border is between, okay, this is specific enough to have a positive effect and this is just not specific enough anymore. So there's no, no, no clear answer, I guess, to this question. Yeah, I think it's something that coaches and researchers are, are still you know, considering and integrating and in the, the art of it all and how that actually plays out in the workout is still uh, being uh, kind of continually tested by everybody. I, I wanted to go talk about what heavy weightlifting. One of the things I was really excited to ask you was the idea of muscle slack. And mm-hmm. so can you just explain what muscle slack is, how how does it differ between, say, uh, a heavy traditional lift and what we see in running or sprinting or sport movement? And what implications might that make for what we do in the weight room? Yeah. Okay. Well, I also, again, recently wrote a paper on muscle slack with, with friends Bosch. So, and we defined muscle slack as a delay between muscle contraction and the recoil of the serial elastic elements in the muscle. And there are several physiological processes that causes delay, but I won't go into detail in this podcast because that's probably not of primary interest to the practitioners listening. So more uh, more important is actually how muscle slack affects performance. And uh, for this, I will first do a little bit more general introduction. So uh, the time to produce force in many movements is only about 300 milliseconds maximum. And muscle slack can take up to 100 milliseconds and even more. And therefore, if a muscle needs to produce maximum force as fast as possible, but the delay between contraction and force production is 100 milliseconds, then there is only about 200 milliseconds left to apply force. And this results in decreased performance. So minimizing the duration of muscle slack would be beneficial for performance because there is more more time to uh, produce force or the movement can be short in duration, which is also sometimes beneficial. So we described three strategies that can be used to minimize muscle slack. So the first one is pretension through co-contractions. The second one is the use of a kind of movement, and the third one is the use of an external load. So we'll first discuss co-contractions briefly. Um, so co-contractions essentially involves contraction of, uh, for example, in the calf muscles, so the calf muscles and the tibialis anterior. So two muscles that have uh, you know, sort of not similar functioning, so agonist, antagonist. And so if they both contract simultaneously, they essentially stretch the muscle tendon unit, hereby taking up slacks, stretching some of the serial elastic elements, and hereby reducing the effects of muscle slack. So when you have a relaxed muscle, when it then has to contract, it first has to reduce slack of the muscle, stretch the tendon, and then it can apply uh, force to, to a certain external object. So when you already have this contraction, before you have to apply force, some of this muscle slack is already taken up. So the effect of muscle slack is decreased. So co-contractions seem to be quite an effective uh, way to reduce the effect of muscle slack when they are not applied excessive, because if you have too much contraction, it can also reduce force production. So, but in general, I guess co-contractions is quite an effective way to reduce muscle slack. 
So then the second strategy we have is a kind of movement. But uh, so performance during a kind of movement jump is almost always better than performance without uh, with a, in a movement without a kind of movement. And these findings often make researchers and practitioners uh, conclude that the better performance in a kind of movement will automatically lead to better results during competition. But this may not be the case because like if you perform a kind of movement, then the muscle tendon unit will be stretched. So it will take up muscle slack. But it's quite possible that practice uh, doing kind of movements during training leads actually to an increase in muscle slack because the athlete's ability to perform core contractions may be reduced as a consequence of the supporting effect of a kind of movement. So essentially, the athlete gets, gets used to the kind of movement reducing muscle slack and thereby, uh, therefore, does not create pretension to minimize muscle slack. So essentially, the central nervous system becomes lazy. And there is some indirect evidence because uh, several studies have found that kind of movement jump training actually, uh, as a result of kind of movement jump training, some individuals increased amplitude, so the depth of the kind of movement jump. And this can actually indicate that they simply have more slack, so they need the larger kind of movement to take up the slack. So kind of movements, performing kind of movements may not be a really good strategy to take up slack because in competition, performing a kind of movement takes more time than performing no kind of movement. So, for example, during a backward swing, during tennis or baseball or also uh, football. So when you so soccer, when you're in front of the goal, you see some some athletes and you really need a sort of large kind of movement of the leg before they can kick the ball, and then the defender has already kicked the ball away. So when you have less muscle slack, you can create. So when you have more pretension, you don't need this large kind of movement to kick the ball in, in the goal, for example. So kind of movement, I would say, is not a really good strategy to reduce the effect of muscle slack. And kind of movement jump training may actually increase muscles like on the long term. So then the third one, external load. So when we add resistance to movement, for example, such as a squat, we also essentially apply a stretching force to the muscle tendon unit. And this will also take up slack and uh, stretch the tendons. And therefore, this will also reduce the effect of muscle slack. But a, lo a lot of sports activities have no or very low external load that can reduce muscle slack. And... So also external load is not, not, not really a sort of appropriate strategy to reduce the effect of muscle slack on the acute way. So in a sports situation, because we can't really apply external load. Uh, so again, for the acute way, I would say core contractions is the only way that uh, essentially effectively reduces the effect of muscle slack. And on the long term, kind of movement jump training may increase muscle slack. And the same may actually be true for external load because the external load also applies the stretching force to the muscle tendon unit every time and thereby could also uh, theoretically make the central nervous system sort of lazy because it already applies the stretch to the muscle tendon unit here by taking up slack and therefore the muscle or the central nervous system doesn't have to create pretension to take up the slack so it's quite a long story but i hope it was uh, was clear that was good so i so i i think there's a couple of things that i want to follow up there mm -hmm. the so the first is the thought or the idea of it's all, so it's almost like um, how am I, how do I want to put this uh, so there's almost an inverse relationship in a way to co-contraction uh, 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 the the prevalence of co-contractions and then the use of the stretch shortening cycle so the more you utilize the stretch shortening cycle like a longer stretch shortening cycle would have decreased co-contractions and a lot of co-contractions would have a less use of the stretch shortening cycle or, or 
is that is that um, maybe I hope I'm putting in the right uh, context. Would that be would that be a good way of thinking about it? I guess uh, I'm not sure if there's like directly uh, from a research perspective uh, exactly true, but you could indeed uh, if you, for example, consider the kind of movement or indeed a back back leg swing. Uh, if if the amplitude of a kind of movement is larger, then I would say in general indeed there is more muscle slack that has been taken up. And so there are less co-contractions performed. So if you have more co-contractions or more pretension, you don't need an as large as kind of movement. So essentially you don't need as much as time to perform the movement. So yeah, it would be quite correct, I guess. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, I think you said it well, like it's more the range of the movement. I think about, I, I guess I'm just thinking about right now two sporting movements like uh, like uh a football player kicking uh, uh, kicking a soccer ball like a, a large there's a large range of movement in the swing leg so you wouldn't want a lot of co-contractions there but if you're doing like like hurdle hops where you're where you were trying to not bend your legs very much then and and be stiff there would be a lot more co-contractions in that particular movement versus kicking yeah a exactly ball. yeah so for example with with the last example with the hurdle jump so if you have an athlete who is sort of lazy so it doesn't has a lot of co-contractions or pretension then probably during uh, between every hurdle, they need to perform quite a kind of movement to tense the muscles to jump up again. And at least who can really have some pretension co contractions, they really have a short ground contact. They don't really need a large range of motion to perform this, to build up this tension. And you you, you can measure actually this by partly by ground contact. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I've always been interested in that. I'm sure there's a lot of factors. I know you do a lot with the hamstrings. And I've always felt like those athletes who you'd have them do depth jumps and hurdle hops and they would bend their legs a lot, they tended to fire their quad a lot earlier and they had a harder time recruiting their hamstrings. But does hamstrings, and you said hamstrings uh, isometrically play a role in jumping, like they function isometrically. So would that be, to be stiff there, would you need kind of a lot of, of pre-stiffening like activity there in the hamstrings to kind of keep that... Um, that jump stiffer and more rigid yeah for example again for the hurdle jumps indeed so for example the hamstring uh, the the quads the calf muscles they all have to have pretension but also actually the trunk so it's, it's the whole body that has to be pretensed to build up the tension so you don't need to, so so essentially the slack so the relaxed position of the muscle is taken up so if the muscle is still slack then you have to first form a kind of movement and contract the muscle fibers to stretch the tendon and take up the slack and then you can perform movement. So if you can create these co-contractions then this will eventually benefit performance because there is just a less effect of muscle slack and therefore a shorter delay between contraction of the muscle fibers and eventual force production. Yeah. So. In, in what you're saying, athletes getting lazy. So if I was trying to have someone improve their vertical jump, and I and and specifically for sport where I didn't want them bending down really far before they they jumped, uh, where I wanted the 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 bend to be less before they jumped, would doing um, it, it would as opposed to say doing traditional half squats or quarter squats, would doing that half squat or quarter squat off of a pin where like the bar was starting from a dead stop and then pushing into it be better for that co-contraction uh, than just a traditional up and down? Um, again, that's something to think about because then you're missing the eccentric phase for, for a squat. So if you're, if you're using weight, perhaps eccentric, I have some applications for, for fascicle length, finishing angle, sort of structural changes. 
So I guess for, for this point, I just say I would use variation. So perhaps it's important to indeed use the traditional squat sometimes for the structural adaptations, but for minimizing perhaps the effects of muscle slack, it would perhaps indeed be useful to perform this from a dead end position. So the athlete has to create, build up this pretension and the external load does not up, take up the, spree, the, the, the slack essentially. So I guess that's a good point. Yeah, I was I was always interested in what the difference is between. I mean, there's a lot. There's so many ways you can squat. You can go up and down. You can like 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 explode down and hold it, and then go back up, or explode down, explode up, or do it from a rack. And I was the biggest thing I had always wondered for a while was what an advantage might be of doing it from a dead start uh, versus uh, versus um, just going up and down. And I I had thought for some reason that that was like just just muscle slack. But I'm glad you you answered that there's more a little bit more to it going on with that with that in the phases yeah 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 so does again so you always have to think about the positive and negative effects of doing things the way you do them and that's yeah something we slowly need to get into also the the research also but also in the world of the practitioners yeah yeah uh, you had mentioned with co-contractions there can be too much and that that's something i was thinking about in the sense of like um, who is it? I heard it was a Nick Winkleman uh, um, podcast on. He was saying if there was like too much external thinking in a movement, like someone was overcoached, that would lead to excessive co-contractions, like like rigid movement. Like it's almost mm. like there's that time for rigidity and the time for being fluid too. Uh, so what? Can you talk a little bit about? You had said when co-contractions become excessive. So essentially, if if you want to. I think I guess it's easy to take the example of the calf muscles. So let's say in a really simple movement, you uh, you jump down from the hurdle jump and you want to jump up as fast as possible again. So then you need, uh, in the most simple way, you just need the calf muscles to have plantar flexion of the ankle joint. But if the tibialis anterior, so the antagonist, is still contracting, then this will reduce the effect of the the plant the calf muscles having an effect on. Uh, plantar flexion of the ankle joint. So it essentially, tibialis anterior wants to have dorsal flexion, so pull up the ankle, and the calf muscles will want to pull down the ankle joint. So excessive co-contractions in this way essentially involves that tibialis anterior is not correctly uh, deactivated, and therefore um, essentially reducing the effect of the calf muscles on the, the plantar flexion. And also if, if two muscles are uh, being activated too much, this causes reciprocal inhibition. So at a neural level, it causes one muscle to be activated less because the, the other muscle is also activated. So that's also something you don't want. So essentially when you just um, train a lot of plyometrics, for example, your body will naturally learn how to best uh, well do the coordination essentially of this muscle. So the timing will eventually probably be better and better and better and better. So this this effect of the negative effects of co-contractions will get less, and the positive effects on reducing muscle slack will probably be better. Yeah. What uh, for muscle slack? Uh, are there any practical uh, recommendations or implications you can make uh, for how we treat things in the weight room based on muscle slack? Like how we would change, make some possible changes to anything what we were doing, like traditional yeah. traditionally. Yeah. So I guess the most important one is to to minimize. The amplitude of kind of movements in training. Uh, so, so for example, kind of movement jumps, you could re replace them largely by squat jumps. Um, you see, also some athletes, I see that quite often, when they need to perform the single leg hand clean, for example, or single leg snatch to a box, 
when they start from the hang position, they first perform a kind of movement and then they perform the actual snatch or clean. So also here, minimizing the amplitude of the kind of movement may perhaps benefit performance because the athlete gets taught to, to pretense the muscles to perform co-contractions and it's not the kind of movement before they perform the actual clean or snatch before they, uh, that, that takes up the slack. Yeah, I suppose you could do that with all um, uh, every medicine ball throw conceivable too. I mean, based on your sport a little bit, but like the vertical, like a vertical medicine ball throw where you where uh, you took the medicine ball down, hinged it down like a clean, and threw it back up. I feel like that's rarely, if ever, coached. the The amplitude of those medicine ball throw movements is just kind of like it's. You could let ath often the athletes are let to bend down as much as they want as long as they throw the ball high. <laughs> if people don't yeah, think about exactly. how they got there. Yeah, but it's, it's indeed the same point. So also there, I guess it's important to perhaps minimize the amplitude of the kind of movement. So they have to create this pretension to minimize muscle slack. And it's not the whole range of motion that stretches the muscle and thereby reducing the effect of slack. Because th this kind of movement, the time to perform the large kind of movement is simply usually not available in more sports situations. So also in training, we have to provide some time pressure to, to minimize uh, or to actually to force them to perform co-contractions and to minimize the amplitude of the counter movement jump. And something else we can use to force co-contractions and minimize counter movements, for example, is, is an unstable load. So if you have a, a bag filled with water or you have a barbell with some, some weights attached to elastic bands to, to the barbell so that they move, it will cause instability. And if you don't perform, if you don't have pretension, so if you don't perform co-contractions, simply will lose balance during these exercises. So if you perform some running or a squat or a single leg clean to a box with, for example, with an unstable load, you would just need to have pretension to minimize the loss of balance. So there's also a way to, to force co-contractions pretension. So two ways are, are, I guess, really good. So it's time pressure and using an unstable load. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, yeah, I, I've seen that with the water bags, like to take up the, so that's to take up the slack in the trunk and make the trunk a more, uh, improve the reflexive quality of that system kind of as athletes are running or, or moving around. Yeah, yeah, but also not only of the trunk, also just of the, of the lower leg muscle. So if, if the water is moving to one side, of course your trunk needs to be balanced, but also your leg muscles have to need to have a lot of pretension to essentially reduce the, the perturbation of the, of the, of the water, yeah. Yeah, I think of that almost in a, uh, the planes of the body, like the frontal plane. Like sometimes I'll do, uh, I'll do loaded carries where an athlete holds a, a dumbbell or a kettlebell on one leg, and as they step through, they'll they'll really try to like hike the hip up of the side that has the the dumbbell or the kettlebell in the hand to work on that. But with the water bag, it kind of it's a little more dynamic. Like they have to, you have to, you can't think about it too much. It just has to happen. <laughs> Uh, so that's yeah, interesting. I, that stuff is interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. Good. <laughs> uh, the, so last question, Buzz, I have for you. you. I know you've done, you're doing a lot of work on hamstrings. So could you talk a little bit about, uh, hamstring length in running? So how does the, the length that the bot, that the body operates the hamstring have an impact on running? And then could you talk a little bit about the work you're doing in hamstring injury prevention? Mm-hmm. So let me first explain a little bit more in general hamstring functioning during running. So it has classic, classically also be, always be considered to be eccentric. So there have been some studies that have just 
looked at how the joints move, and based on joints movement, I have uh, calculated hamstring muscle tendon unit length. Then they have also investigated the activation of the hamstrings, and they found that the, the whole hamstring muscle tendon unit is lengthening, and it's being activated during the swing phase of high-speed running, so just before ground contact. So they concluded, well, there was an eccentric action then. And of course, there are some studies that have found, well, muscle tendon unit length, as I discussed in the beginning also, does not necessarily represent muscle fiber length. And then there have been two computer studies that have uh, measured muscle fiber length also of the hamstrings. But as we discussed, uh, as I discussed with friends in the review, they, these computer modeling studies did not include some physiological aspects such as muscle slack, which probably causes them to be incorrect. And if you look at animal studies, which have directly investigated the, the muscle fiber length of the hamstrings, they have found no eccentric action, but just an isometric action. So the hamstring likely functions isometric, at least at the muscle fiber level, during the swing phase of high sport running. And the length then, so if you look at the length at which the muscle fibers function, this has not directly been investigated as far as I know during the animal studies, but there has been some research uh, also in animals. So it's, it's quite, it's perhaps not directly applicable. I guess it's applicable to humans, but it simply hasn't been investigated in humans yet. So in this study investigated the effect of activation on the operating length of muscle fibers. And they have shown that if the muscle fibers are really highly activated, then they function close to optimum length, so where, where they can produce the most force. And if you look at the muscle activity of the hamstrings, they are activated to 100, 100 and 150% of the maximum activation uh, measured during maximum voluntary contractions during running. So they're even higher activated than they can be activated during like maximum voluntary contractions. So if you look at that, you can also think about, well, then how valid is a maximum voluntary contraction, but that's something to consider for later. But take home point from here is that they are higher activated, uh, highly activated during running, and therefore they function likely close to the optimum length. So therefore we, don't, we should also think about training the hamstrings in optimum length, because especially for isometric training, the length at which you train the muscle it will, uh, it's quite specific. So if you train the muscle at uh, one specific length, then it will also become stronger at that length and not so much at other lengths. So therefore we, we should try to train the hamstrings isometrically at that specific length. And you can let the body self-organize that length by f allowing the pelvic area to freely orientate. And therefore it simply can find at which length the hamstring is strongest and can provide the most force. Okay. Yeah, so back to kind of the the Roman chair type type thing, like where, uh, yeah, just and, and do you for the trunk angles in that Roman chair? I think a lot of uh, and maybe I can find a video for this, but I think a lot of listeners do are familiar with that movement with the Roman chair, and then you're you're uh, leaning out and you have one leg in. Do you have the trunk angle? Is the trunk angle usually uh, parallel to the ground, or do you play around with that based off what you're looking for? Again, it's also something I'm not strictly looking at. It should be roughly parallel to the ground, but again, the body can freely sort of self-organize the length that suits the body as best as possible. So, but in general, indeed, sort of parallel to the ground. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm sure so, I'm sure some athletes, yeah, would probably self-organize. Maybe they're a little stronger with the at least with the torso a few degrees down. Or I imagine you would learn some things too about an athlete and their, their preferences and their hamstring strength just from putting them in that position. Yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah. 
So if you have a heavy weight and you see the athlete can't get get fully up, that's probably simply too heavy. Yeah, that uh, does the hamstring too. Like when the this is something I I look at a lot is uh, the swing leg coming down in runners. So as the swing leg is coming down uh, to strike the ground, some athletes have a little bit more flexion in at the knee, whereas some athletes have less. It's almost like some athletes like a shorter hamstring. And some athletes like a little longer one. Does that play in at all with what you guys are doing or, or research on the hamstring length and running? Um, didn't re- read something specifically on on the effect of knee angle, but I can imagine, of course, if the knee is more stretched, that the hamstring will be stretched to to a lot larger length. And perhaps I'm not sure actually, but perhaps this is a sort of good indication of uh, better runners would then simply have a larger stretch of the tendon and hereby also a larger recall, if essentially, of elastic energy. But again, I'm not sure if that's that's true, so just something I'm thinking about now. Yeah, it is, it is yeah, you said, um, yeah, I think a lot of it, there probably hasn't been any formal research on this. It's kind of like taking what we have and, and they kind of making uh, some some thoughts and assumptions. But I do think, yeah, more yeah, the more elastic athletes, like more of the jumpers, uh, do seem to have that uh, that little straighter leg so yeah maybe they they can allow their their tendon to elongate a little bit more at that at that ground stroke than versus someone else yeah that could definitely be true so it's something interesting to to investigate in the future yeah well that's great uh, uh well thank you boz that's all the questions i have for today but i appreciate it i, I learned a little bit more about muscle slack and, and the way that uh, muscles operate there so a lot of great stuff today i really appreciate you for your time yeah thanks for having me again was uh, was great. Thanks for tuning in with us today. I appreciate your listenership, and I can't imagine that you left that episode without knowing just a little bit more about the phases of muscle contraction, muscle slack, uh, isometric, and the bioarticular nature of muscles and just a lot of great things to think about in um, leading us to create better training programs for our athletes. Uh, Again, please visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. They have KBOX, 1080, free lap timing system, and a whole lot more. They have a lot of new, really cool stuff in their store. Changes coming up on the site, big stuff. I'm going to talk with you guys a little bit more about that next week. So again, please uh, check them out, and they got big things coming out uh regularly for for people to get faster and stronger and more explosive we'll uh, be back next week with another great guest and we will see you guys then have a good one